Well, the philosopher Charles Taylor gives us basically two ways of seeing the world that we live in. Uh, the first way we can see the world is called the mimetic view, which sees the world as, quote, having a given order and meaning, and thus sees human beings as required to discover that meaning and conform themselves to it. All right, so think of the world like uh, a train running on railroad tracks. All right, we do well when we run on those tracks. Uh, that's where we find the most freedom. If you try to run the rail that train on an open field, uh, you are going to find a mess in your hands. The mimetic view. By way of contrast, the poietic view, quote, sees the world as so much raw material out of which meaning and purpose can be created by the individual. So in this view, the world is like a batch of Play-Doh that you can just play with and make whatever you want. What do you think? Do we live in a world with order and meaning where our purpose as human beings is to learn to abide by that order and meaning? Or is the world just a bunch of Play-Doh, raw materials for us to create our own meaning and purpose? It's not hard to see which view is dominant in our increasingly secular culture. Uh, whether you see it in the sexual revolution or the rise of virtual technologies of artificial intelligence, gene therapy, biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, streaming entertainment, social media, uh, countless other ways. You know, we, we are living during a time where very few people stop to ask, should we be doing this? Rather, people are happy just to take the, the raw materials of this world and redefine their bodies and their lives however they want. Now, all of these things might sound like issues that are unique to our 21st century life, or they might sound like some sort of debate between those who are more progressive and those who are more conservative. But according to the Bible, that poietic worldview, this, this view of individual autonomy, is actually at the heart of the human experience. It's what all of us are about. Our very first parents decided many, many years ago that they would choose to define themselves rather than trust in God. Whether you are a religious traditionalist or a secular progressive, in one sense, all of us have lived poietic lives, treating our lives like Play-Doh, making meaning and purpose for ourselves. Well, this morning we continue our study through the book of Proverbs. And here in Proverbs, we encounter an alternative way to live, right? Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. If you're looking in the Pew Bibles in front of you, that's on page 528. Actually, you would be helped just to have uh, Proverbs chapter 3 open in front of you or up on your devices. Uh, as we go along, you'll be able to follow along more easily with what we're thinking about. Proverbs chapter 3, page 528 in the Pew Bible. As we talked about last time, this is a book that was given to us by the greatest king of Israel, King Solomon. 
who was gifted with divine wisdom from God. You can read more about Solomon in the book of 1 Kings. but, But Solomon was not content merely just to keep the wisdom to himself. No, rather this book is his attempt to pass on that wisdom to his people. Uh, So we see that here in verse 1, beginning uh, of Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Solomon's teaching here is not like a king sort of ordering his subjects around. No, it's like a loving father speaking to his children. Whatever wisdom Solomon has received, he wants to impart that to his people. He wants them to order their lives according to this divine wisdom, to wear around their necks, to write it on their hearts so that it remains with them wherever they go. Because it's through wisdom that they know peace, that they find prosperity. And what is at the heart of this wisdom that Solomon is imparting? We see it in verses 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Well, if you've grown up in church and sat through Sunday school classes, likely this is a passage that you've memorized. Uh, And that's totally appropriate because I would argue that this is the central idea of this chapter and really even a a wonderful summary of what Proverbs is all about. If I were to give you a big idea for my sermon here this morning, it would be this. You cannot make it through life on your own. You need God. You cannot make it through life on your own. But you need God. Proverbs 3 is not just about giving us tips for how we can make a little bit more money or be a little more efficient with our life or live a little bit longer. No, this is about how we make it in life. This is about the difference between a life of flourishing and a life of utter ruin. Between living as God intended or falling under his wrath. So we want to think about what it means to live a life of trust in God. And yet, before we can even learn to trust this God, we have to know who he is, right? Who is this God that is calling us to trust him? So if you're taking notes, I basically have two points for my sermon. Point number one, you need to know God. Point number two, you need to trust God, right? You need to know him and you need to trust him. May the Lord open our eyes to who he is, that we may trust him with all that we have. All right, point number one, you need to know God. This chapter is full of instruction uh, on what wisdom looks like and the reward that wisdom brings. But at the very center of this chapter are two verses that stand out kind of like a mountaintop. Rather than talking about what wisdom is and how we live it out and what it brings to us, these two verses talk about the Lord of wisdom himself. And these two verses function as a kind of foundation and capstone 
for everything that we see here. And, and I'm talking about verses 19 and 20. Just right in the center of this chapter. Verses 19 and 20. Look, look there with me. Proverbs 3, 19 and 20. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open. And the clouds dropped down the dew. What is this telling us? Well, this is telling us that we live in a world that was founded and established by God and by his wisdom. From heaven to earth, all of creation exists by God's wisdom and understanding. Everything in it exists with the design and intentionality of God's power, God's creativity, his generosity to all of his creatures, especially to those that he made in his image, mankind. Even though we live in a world that has been marred and cursed because of sin, this world still shines with the wisdom of our creator. You know, it is this conviction that we live in a world created by a wise and loving creator that drives all human study, all human science, right? Biology, chemistry, physics, mathematics, astronomy, engineering. We, we don't believe that this, rule, this world is ruled by capricious spirits that we have to appease. We don't believe that things just happen spontaneously without explanation. No, we believe that there is order and structure to the universe because God is a God of wisdom, not of chaos. Part of our job as human beings then is to understand the world that God has made. <laughs> we get to marvel at his amazing wisdom and then to live accordingly, right? If we ignore the way that God has made the world, we are going to suffer. If I ignore the law of gravity and try jumping off this roof later this, today, uh, I'm quickly going to suffer some painful consequences, right? Now, far, far better would be for me to try to understand how the law of gravity works and adjust how I live as a result, Wisdom means recognizing that we live in a world that God has made, understanding how this world works and living accordingly. But, but more than just understanding how this world, world works physically, Solomon here is calling us to understand that there is a moral structure to the universe. If wisdom is to trust in the Lord, then just like I have to obey the laws of gravity in order to survive— I also have to follow God's laws of morality, how we are to live. Friends, we live in the world that God has made. Uh, not many will tell you this today, but I'm here to say to you that you are not the product of random chance. You were made by a loving God who made you with thought and intentionality and wisdom and he has a design for how you are to live. Your, your body, your mind, your heart, all these things have been given to you for a purpose. Wisdom means learning and submitting ourselves to that purpose and flourishing as God intended us to. We see in verse 20 that not only did God make us, but he remains intimately involved in this world that he has made. 
That's what we see there in verse 20. Here's a God who graciously sustains the earth, who brings forth water to nurture the earth, who, though humanity is wicked, God continues to send rain that falls gently on the earth like dew. Year after year, harvest after harvest, we survive only by His sustaining power. God shows Himself to be a gracious and patient and generous God in His ongoing provision for creation. So even here this morning, right, we're sitting here in this beautiful sunny day. I mean, just look at the world around you. Look at the sun shining. Look at the trees. All the life around us. Look at these marvelous bodies that we've been given. What does it all mean? Right, is, it, is this just a product of chaos? Meaningless chance? Or is this all a love letter from someone who cares for us deeply? One Christian apologist gives this illustration. He says this, Imagine this scene. Betty, the botanist, is in the lab. And she says to Gary, her lab technician, Hey, thanks so much for that botanical specimen you brought in last week. I've run tests on it. I've discovered new ecosystems on the leaves. I've even found pharmacological properties that will help us in the fight against Alzheimer's. Thanks so much for that. And Gary says, specimen? Betty, I gave you a long stem rose on February 14th, Valentine's Day. Do you understand what I gave to you? This world, more than just something to be studied, what if this world was a gift to be received? We should learn as much as we can about this world, yes. But beyond its scientific properties, what if this world is telling us something about God? What if it's pointing us to his wisdom, his love, his care, even for us? The Old Testament reveals to us the creator God who who loves his creation, who continues to graciously provide for us moment by moment. And yet, to be honest, we are a lot like Betty. We're not thinking about him much at all. We're just obsessed with the things of this world. In fact, from the very beginning, as I said, humanity has rebelled against God, ignored him because of our pride. Rather than conforming our lives to his design, we have chosen to live however we want to live in selfishness, and greed, and lust, and violence. We have turned our bodies and our world into just this so much Play-Doh for us to use for our own evil desires. And as a result, we have grieved our good God and incurred his just and everlasting wrath. And yet even so, this same God shows us his love in a way far beyond what we could have ever imagined. God, the creator, in the person of Jesus, of Nazareth, came down. He took on our humanity, just as the prophets were told. He was born into this world. He lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect wisdom. He became our ultimate human representative. And then he offered his life as a sacrifice to pay the punishment of our sins. He was buried, and it looked like sin and death had won. And yet three days later, he rose from the dead, proving his victory over sin and death. And now, for all those who will 
turn away from their pride, turn away from their sin and their self-sufficiency and trust in him. God promises to apply Christ's finished work to them and to forgive them of their sins and reconcile them to himself. Oh, friends, Christ's righteousness is being held out to us here this morning as a free gift if we will trust in him. If you are new to Christianity, this is how you can come to know God, not only as your creator, but also as your loving redeemer. No matter how wrong of a life you have lived, through Jesus, God provides all that you need to be forgiven, to be reconciled to him. Even today, repent of your sins, trust in him. And if that's new to you, if you have any questions about what that means, I would love to talk to you after the service and and explore more what it means to know God as your creator and your redeemer. Well, this God, our creator, the one who sustains us moment by moment, the one who has provided all that we need to be reconciled to him, this God is the one that we are called to trust. Which brings us to point number two, you need to trust God. Knowing God as our creator and redeemer, this is how we are to relate relate to him. Let's let's look again at verse 5 here of Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Well, here we see four verses. They form kind of two couplets. Each couplet has two commands and a promise. And those two commands in each couplet are really two sides of the same coin. right? The, on the one side is the command to trust in the Lord, to fear him, uh, to, to trust in him with all of your heart, turning away from evil. What does that mean, to trust in the Lord? Well, it means that we look to him. Uh, for all the wisdom, all the guidance that we need to show us how we ought to live in this world. It means that we choose the fear of the Lord rather than the empty promises of the evil of this world. I think most of all what it means is that we are those who listen to what God has to say to us. Uh, Even as God is speaking to us here through his word, uh, trusting the Lord means that we, we take that on board. We decide to order our lives according to it. And, and not only here in this chapter, but in all of Scripture, right? In all that God has spoken to us in the Old and the New Testament, this is God's self-revelation to us. God is not silent, but he, he speaks to us in his word. He has revealed himself. He makes known to us his will, his commands, his promises, his purposes. And therefore, those who trust him are those who listen to God. And who begin to live their lives according to what he has said. We follow his ways. We follow his priorities. We obey his commands rather than doing what we think is right. So even this morning as I'm trying to explain to you Proverbs 3, trying to unpack and apply it to our lives, uh, the goal is that you would hear these things and believe this to be true for you. And desire them to begin to live according to what this is saying in every area of your life. 
And yet the other side of the coin is just as important. Right? We see that in, in verse 7. Um, <clears throat> do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. It's not just about trusting the Lord. It's about not trusting in your own understanding, your limited understanding. And to be honest, I think that that's really the hard part, right? Because it's easy for me to think that I'm trusting in the Lord when, in fact, I'm actually trusting in myself. Uh, Too often, I follow God's word only when I think it makes sense to me. Uh, That's, you know, I follow, we follow God's word when we find it to be convenient, or when it aligns with our plans for ourselves. But really, that's not trusting the Lord. We're still leaning on our own understanding. No, rather, it's actually during those circumstances when obedience to God's word seems the hardest to understand, and it seems the most costly, that we begin to demonstrate our trust in the Lord. You know, of course, it's a good thing when God's word makes sense to us, when our lives align with it. But that only goes so far. At the end of the day, trusting God means that we follow him even when it may not make sense to us. It turns out that the greatest competition for our trust in the Lord is is not out there in the world. No, it's in our hearts right here, our own understanding. Will, Will you lean on your own understanding or will you trust in him because he has said said so? This dynamic of trusting God, not leaning on your own understanding, this is what the New Testament calls repentance and faith. Turning away from self-sufficiency, turning away from pride and our self-righteousness and trusting in what God provides through Jesus. Solomon here promises that those who will trust God, their paths will be straight, that they will find strength and health and peace for their lives. How are we to understand these promises? Is Solomon promising that if we trust God, all is going to go well for us? You know, there are some out there who would teach that if you have faith, just enough faith, that God will make you healthy and he will make you prosperous and wealthy. Is that what Solomon is saying here? Well, the Proverbs do teach us that we live in this universe ordered by God. And so when we live according to God's wisdom, we should rightly expect that we would find blessing. You know, that's what these verses and so many of the verses in this passage promise. We should expect that a life in right relationship with God, according to his design, would bring flourishing. And yet at the same time, the Bible teaches that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world full of injustice, of oppression, a world under the curse of death. Things don't go as the way they should. Uh, you, you just read the book of Ecclesiastes if you want to think about that more. And therefore, Solomon never promises a trouble-free life. Uh, as we'll soon see, verses 11 to 12, verse 25, they're going to clearly show that even the righteous will face difficulty. And no matter how much blessing we experience, we know that it all ends in death. So whatever blessing the righteous can know in this life, it is only a foretaste. It is only a foretaste of the true blessing that God offers. In Christ, there is an ultimate promise of resurrection when death is forever vanquished. It turns out that the promise of health and wealth 
in Proverbs is actually that it promises too little. Right? That really what we see here in the storyline of Scripture is a far greater blessing that God is promising. If, if all we had was your best life now, we would be hopeless. But the promise here is that those who trust in God, they will receive eternal life, ultimate joy that can never be taken away. So whatever blessing you see promised here, know that it points us to a far greater reward still to come. Which, which means that, as I said in my introduction, that the stakes are infinitely high. Right? Living by wisdom is not just a, a lifestyle choice for some minor improvements that you can sort of take it or leave it and, and live like a, a suboptimal life. No, no, it is actually the pathway to life itself. As, as we've been saying, you cannot make it through life on your own. You need God. You need to trust in him. Well, as I said, this was a two-point sermon, but now I've got six subpoints, which I'm going to work through fairly quickly. Uh, here are six practical areas for our lives uh, that we cannot handle on our own. You try to work through these areas of your life on your own, you are going to make a mess of things. You need to trust in the Lord for these things. Number one, in our finances, trusting, trusting God with our finances. Look at verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Well, what does it look like to trust God with your finances? Well, ask yourself this question. Who owns all that you have? Is it God or is it you? You know, that's the whole point of the Israelites giving of their first fruits. In the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to, to give to the work of the temple, to give to support the priests who taught God's word. And from the first produce of their harvest, they were to give to the Lord out of that, that first uh, produce of their harvest as an indication of their trust in God. Even as they had worked all year and waited for God to provide this harvest, they were to give of their first fruits to God, honoring him as the one who owns all things, who provided all that they had, and trusting him to provide for all their coming needs. So the idea of giving first fruits is not just like, Lord, I'm going to give you 10% and the rest belongs to me. No, it was this acknowledgement that Everything they had came from him. And it was all to be a stewardship used for his glory. For those who would trust God in this way, Solomon says here, God will never shortchange you. God will be no one's debtor. No, you will be blessed for your trust in the Lord, and God will be glorified. This teaching continues down to the church. Uh, One of the subjects that Jesus taught on the most was money. Because Jesus understood how much we are tempted to trust in money rather than in God. The early church took Jesus' teaching to heart and we see them giving sacrificially out of their resources to support the preaching of the gospel in their cities and around the world. And this continues down to our day, right? Everything we have is a stewardship and the best thing that we can do for eternity with our money is to invest in the work of the gospel. As we say in our church covenant, we will work together to maintain a faithful gospel witness in our worship, 
ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. And so as we give to the work of the church, we commit ourselves to maintaining a faithful gospel witness here in Kansas City, south of the plaza. Week after week, we gather here and we give financially to set apart pastors who give themselves to the preaching of the word and to equip us to be able to take that gospel to wherever we are. And beyond that, we give to support gifted brothers and sisters who are taking the gospel all over the world to bring the gospel to those who have little or no access to it. So brothers and sisters, who, who owns your money? Right? Is it you or is it God? You giving to the ministry of the gospel is one of the main ways that you live out your stewardship of your resources. You know, we don't live in an agrarian society, so uh, we get paid more often than just once a year, right? Uh, the first fruits doesn't have the same ring for us. But I would say this, as you plan out your budget, rather than giving to the church simply from sort of the leftovers of your budget after everything else has been paid and committed for, no, think about actually making your giving to gospel ministry as the first part of your budget. Pray and ask what the Lord will have you to give. 10% has typically been a helpful starting point for many. Make that the start and then figure everything else out from there. Right? Even for those of you who are college students here, uh, I understand. College means finances are tight. Even so, let me encourage you. Uh, begin building that discipline of giving even during these early years uh, of life, even if you're giving just a little bit, like 20 or 10 or 5 a month, start where you can. Uh, you know, giving, I think, is never easy. The model for us in the New Testament is not a percentage, but a disposition. We give cheerfully and sacrificially because what a wonderful opportunity our giving is for us to trust in God, in our finances. And we can know that he will never shortchange anyone's trust in him. Number two, uh, trusting God in our hardships. All right, verse 11. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. You know, one of the most difficult parts of trusting God is actually during difficult times, during times of trials and hardships. Solomon doesn't specify what uh, discipline this is, but whatever it is, it's painful. It's wearing. It's hard to believe that there's any good in it. And yet, this is exactly what it means to trust God. Rather than thinking that this pain is random or thinking that God is out to get you, trusting God means recognizing that he is sovereign and that he intends this hardship for our good as discipline. Through hardships, through disappointments, through suffering, God is refining us. God is sanctifying us. He's revealing our idols. He's removing worldly securities. He is showing us that he is our only hope. And in all this, we are being brought to trust in a God that is loving, a God that is not angry at us. He's not punishing us. No, he delights in us. And he's training us for his good purposes. There are going to be times in your life 
when suffering just won't make sense. And here I would say, be careful not to try to over-interpret your suffering. As if we can always perfectly understand God's intentions or connect, you know, some particular sin to some particular suffering. No, when we try to do that, actually what we're trying to do is, is lean on our own understanding, right? No, rather, our call is to trust God. As John Piper says, every day in every circumstance, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, but you might be aware of only three of them, right? And so uh, we trust that what he has in store for us is good, and, and he will work it out in his timing, in his ways that are far above our ways. So trust him. Trust him in the midst of hardship. Number three, uh, trust God with your ambitions. With your ambitions. Uh, verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and from her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her hand. And in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. So the question here is, you know, what do you value in this life? What are you pursuing? What is most important to you? Here we are. We have limited time in our lives, limited resources. We are finite. We can't do everything. Right, you got to climb up some ladder. What if you spend your life climbing up the ladder of career, of money, and you come to the very top, the very end, and you realize, what a waste. That's not what I should have been pursuing. No, here we've been given a, a much better ambition for our lives. Wisdom teaches us to value a right relationship with God more than money, more than life itself, because wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It is trusting the Lord with all of our hearts. And this is what life really counts for. You know, of all people, Solomon knew this. He, as a king, amassed more wealth and more riches than anyone during his time. And yet he understood that all those things were passing away. At the bottom of his wealth, really what was of value was the wisdom that God had given him. And it was through wisdom that Solomon would attain every other blessing. In verses 16 to 18, we see that wisdom is life itself. Solomon calls it the tree of life. Ever since Adam and Eve were cast away from the garden, humanity has been cut off from the tree of life. But here, as we learn to trust God, as we learn to cling to Christ in the gospel, we take hold of the tree of life. We embrace life itself. Not just quantity of life, but quality of life. So whatever else you pursue, make it your ambition to pursue wisdom. What does that look like? How, how do you pursue wisdom? In the fourth century, I read about Christians who, you know, were concerned about the corruption of the world and uh, the creeping worldliness in the church. And they began to go off into caves and deserts and monasteries in order to pursue a life of devotion to God. I respect those Christians, but that's not what Jesus commands us to do. No, rather, God's call for us is even while we live in this world 
that we pursue him, right? Whatever, wherever he has placed you in your work, in your neighborhoods, in your role as a spouse, as a parent, as a student, as a roommate, that in all those things, you are, pers- you are learning what it means to trust God. You're learning what it means to fear him. And your goal in all those parts of your life is faithfulness, right? Success in life is faithfulness to God. If wisdom really is more precious than jewels, if it's the tree of life itself, then success is measured not by any of your possessions, but by your faithfulness to God and your trust in him. Everything else is secondary. Number four, trusting God with our security. 21, verse 21. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Friends, what is your security in life? Is it your insurance policy? Is it your own determination and hard work? Or is it ultimately in God? You know, we see here that God gives spiritual security to those who trust in him. You know, that may not be the kind of security that we are looking for. I said spiritual security. And yet, this is what we need the most. And we see this described in three ways. Security when we walk. right? Verse 23, this is everyday life. When we trust in the Lord with all our hearts, God promises that we will walk securely, that, that your foot will not stumble. What does that mean, that your foot will not stumble? Well, that, that could be a reference to not encountering physical harm. But again, we're gonna, he, he talked about how we will encounter discipline in life, and he's going to talk about calamity later. No, so often, especially in poetry, this idea of stumbling refers to a loss of faith, a turning away from God, a falling away from God. Uh, we see that especially in Psalm 73. So in other words, to stumble is to, is to turn away from God, to lean on your own understanding. Wisdom, then, is what guards us in every walk of life from stumbling, that we continue to trust in God, that we walk securely in every path of life, both in joys and in sorrows. And, and we see security here when we lie down. Uh, as we trust in the Lord, security means that we no longer have to fear those things over which we're not in control. You know, and sleep is, is the perfect illustration for this. Uh, because when you go to sleep, you recognize that you're not in control. Right? So often, sleeplessness is an indication that we are anxious, that we are trying to, to hold on and control everything in our lives. Oh, but, but every night we have this reminder when we go to sleep that we are finite and that God alone is God. To trust in the Lord with all our hearts means that we can finally let go and, and entrust everything to him and go to sleep. Tonight when you lay down, 
use that as an opportunity to, to remember your creatureliness, creatureliness, and to place your hope in God. As, as Charles Spurgeon said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night. Sleep trusting in the God who never sleeps. In verse 25, security when terror comes. Solomon doesn't say if it comes. He says when it comes. At some point, living in a fallen world, terror will come. Injustice, disasters, persecution, and ultimately death. Even those who trust in God will be exposed to ruin. And if that's true, how do we know that we will not stumble? How do we know that we will not renounce Christ and make shipwreck of our faith? Well, we know because God will hold fast to us. And he will provide all that we need to hold fast to him. Corey ten Boom tells of a story of how she learned to trust God in the midst of death early on in life. When she was a young girl, she had witnessed the death of a child. And she was confronted with the fragile nature of life. And she began to fear. And she cried out to her father, Father, I, I need you. You can't die. I never want to lose you. And seeking to comfort his daughter, her father sat down beside her and said to her, Corey, whenever we travel, when we travel to Amsterdam, when do I give you the ticket for the train? And she said, why, you give it to me right before we get on the train. And her father says, yeah, exactly. And our wise father in heaven knows when we are going to need things too. So don't run ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your own heart and find the strength you need just in time. And the Lord is faithful. He provides all that we need in order to be able to cling to him when terror comes. That's what we see there in verse 26. As you make the Lord your confidence, he will keep your foot from stumbling. He will give you all the faith that you need to persevere. I mean, this is the wonderful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, right? If God has saved you, he will not let you go. For I am sure that neither life, death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. At Romans 8. So this is where we find our security in life. Yes, buy insurance, plan for retirement, study hard, work hard. But all that has nothing to do with your eternal security. No, your eternal security is set because of God's faithfulness. Let the Lord be your confidence and know that you rest in his strong arms. Number five, trusting God with our relationships. Verse 27. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Do not plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Do not contend with a man for no reason when he has done you no harm. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. For the devious person is an abomination to the Lord but the upright are in his confidence. Well, the truth is, when it comes to relationships, 
Relationships are messy. Right? People are difficult. And left to ourselves, we make a mess of relationships all the time. We manipulate. We idolize. We fight. We devour. We use others. That's what happens when we lean on our own understanding. But when we trust in the Lord, we learn what it means to love. We receive God's gracious love, and we learn to give that same love to others. Trusting in the Lord frees us to love our neighbors, to be kind, to be generous, to be gracious. And so we see here in verses 27 and 28 that we are freed to do good to our neighbors. You know, 27, uh, 29 and 30, we certainly see that fearing God means that we refuse to do harm to our neighbors. But even just avoiding doing harm, no, here our trust in God makes us generous, makes us kind. We begin to see that people matter more than things. So rather than telling our neighbor to come back later, and I'll, I'll help you out later. No, we are glad for opportunities to use what we have to bless others around us. Uh, you know, we live in the strange time where you can monetize everything that you have, right? You can rent out your services. You can rent out your things. Uh, and that makes it really hard to be generous, right? Uh, I, I mean, we recently started to rent uh, one of our cars on a car sharing site and I recently had a friend come stay with us from out of town for a week, so I let him use our car. And right away, I just found myself calculating how much this generosity was costing me. Right? I, I put a dollar figure to that amount, uh, to, that, to that act. Rather than being glad for the opportunity to be generous, I was thinking about how much it cost me. You know, what a terrible way to live. I don't want to be constantly calculating whether or not I can be generous. That's not how God treats us. No, I want to trust God to provide. I want to marvel at how kind he has been to me, infinitely so. And I want to be set free to be generous with others, with whatever I've been given. You know, God has given me so many wonderful models of generosity in my own life, even in this church. And I want to be able to do that, the same thing for others. We certainly want to be on guard against the envy of the wicked. We see here, we see that in verses 31 and 32. Uh, there are going to be many around you who do not live according to wisdom. They, they are going to take advantage of others. They are going to withhold good from others. And it's going to look like they're prospering. When you see that, don't envy them. Right? Don't, don't try to copy them. Don't think that they have discovered the right way to live. No. Instead, trust God. Again, I remember one time in my own neighborhood seeing that uh, one of my neighbors was like being evicted. Uh, I don't know the full story, but the result was that someone had gone through the house and literally moved all their possessions onto the front yard. Uh, and I remember seeing some of my neighbors going through there and beginning to like pick through the things and take these things away. Uh, and I, I remember seeing out front like a brand new grill. And I was thinking, ooh, I've, I've been looking for a grill. That would be kind of nice to have. Um, you know, there was this, I have to admit, there was this bit of like fear of missing out, right? 
going on in my heart. Trusting God means that when we see the wicked prospering, we, we don't go along. We don't envy. We would rather miss out than risk compromising our hope in him. Uh, we trust him. We follow him. And we seek to do good. Finally, number six, and we're going to conclude with this one. Trusting God with your future. Trusting God with your future. Verse 33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. You know, after all is said and done, who will have the final word on your life? Whose evaluation will matter most? To trust God is to entrust your future, your eternal destiny to God. Brothers and sisters, this is what it's, what's at stake. Those who reject God's wisdom, who try to make it on their own, will be disgraced, will be cursed, will be scorned and rejected by God. But those who trust in God will know his blessing, will know his favor, will receive and inherit his honor forever. You cannot make it through life on your own. You need God. You need to trust him with all that you have, with all that you are. So in, in your finances, in your suffering, in your ambitions, in your security, in your relationships, and for your eternal future, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Let's pray together. And even before I lead us in prayer, use this time now, just a brief moment of silence, to cry out to the Lord, uh, to confess your need of Him, to confess your dependence on Him, your reliance on Him, and ask Him to help you in that. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning confessing our dependence on you. Oh, Lord, without your wisdom, without your aid, Lord, all the good that we have will only serve towards our eternal ruin, uh, will only lead to us making an utter mess of things. Oh, God, we need to trust you. We need to entrust all that we have to you. Lord, help us. Help us to trust you, to follow your design, your ways, your commands for our lives. Lord, that we may live rightly in this world. Lord, that we may find true flourishing. That we may grab hold of the tree of life. Lord, we confess our dependence on you this morning. And Lord, even this week, Lord, help us to walk in that trust. 
And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.